Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. This is kind of our, I guess you'd say, silver anniversary show. It's show number 25. So uh, uh, I will have to figure out something silver to send you all. Maybe a stick of gum or nail clippers, as Elliot's holding up right now. But um, yeah, it's kind of fun. We've done 25 shows at this point. We've got five members tonight, five questions and five answers for each question. Questions are generated by each squad member and run from the deep to the daffy. Now what we're doing, if you want to know what all the questions are for each show, you can find it in the show notes, in the podcast information on each show, and it'll tell you what the questions are, what time they start in the show, and who asked the questions. So if you want to get a little deeper into the show before you listen to it, that's available in the in the podcast notes for each one of the episodes. Coming up, uh, you will hear it on the 15th of April is when we'll release it. But we're going to take a week off next week uh, and just give us a little break. Yeah, I mean, you do that after 25 shows. And um, what we're going to do is have our doppelgangers in when we record that next show. But we've all selected our doppelgangers. These are people who are going to stand in for us that know us uh, fairly well to be able to be our mirror representation. Uh, I'm going to have my daughter um, kind of host the show. And Gina's going to have her sister uh, as her doppelganger. Elliot's got his son coming in. Eric Perry, who's not with us tonight, is going to have his wife come in. I can't wait to meet her. I mean, you know, that's going to be fun. Uh, all of your doppelgangers will be fun to, to listen to. And then uh, we're still working out uh, but we do have some folks for Stephanie and Jen. Why don't you tell us? I'm planning to have one of my oldest and dearest friends. We became friends in college and we're, I feel like we're basically the same person just operating in different parts of the universe right now. So my, one of my college best friends is going to be coming on as my doppelganger. My dad's agreed. So I'm going <laughs> to get my dad to be my doppelganger in a lot of ways we're similar in some ways we're different maybe listeners can be able to tell how those very nuanced ways that I'm different than my dad but he's gonna be in for my be my doppelganger yeah you know I told Hannah my daughter that your dad was coming in and she's like now let me get this straight we've got Elliot's 18 year old son we've got Steph's dad you know she's excited and also trying to figure out, we're all going to ask them to figure out questions that might work for everybody. I don't know if there are going to be a lot of counseling questions that come out of it, but um, but it should be an interesting and fun show. We're just kind of doing that for enjoyment. And then I think we'll start officially season two. We'll be in our second year for the show. So let's do a roll call tonight. Jen Cook, Assistant Professor, Counselor Education and Counseling Psychology at Marquette University. Gina Martin. I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Iowa, and I'm also affiliate faculty member at Northwestern University and co-host of Supervision Time. Steph Martyr. I am a doctoral candidate at Kent State University, practicing clinical counselor and co-host of Grad School Deconstructed. 
Uh, Elliot Ingersoll. I'm a professor of counseling at Cleveland State University and the host of Apply Topically. And Jen, you've got the first question for tonight. Yes. What is the most challenging feedback to give supervisees during clinical supervision? So I think this is a challenging question. Uh, there's a lot of challenging feedback, and I think it depends on the student uh, or the supervisee, if I'm being completely honest. If they're so let me rewind. So I think my my least favorite advice or feedback or confrontation to give is when supervisees think they've done a really good job. And you're like, that's actually not what was going down in that moment, right? So when there's like that direct opposition of what should happen and the confidence that's not quite in the right place, uh, slightly misdirected, that's the type of, of uh, feedback that I think is the most challenging to give because I think that it undermines the supervisee's confidence. And that's always a difficult place to be. I think it helps if you have a relationship with that supervisee. I think it helps to build up that relationship to a place where they can hear your feedback um, in a way that's actually helpful and not just critical and cutting them down. Because I think that's a primary role of supervision is to help build that confidence and competence. And so whenever you have to directly oppose that, it's never a comfortable place to be. That's really true. and. When you are working on a specific skill week to week to week to week to week, um, it, you, you're trying to figure out different techniques and different approaches as a supervisor. And it can, again, be challenged. Like, I just I'm thinking of one situation in particular and that confidence, too that you're talking about Gina and it was, but, but we're watching cause, cause in our program, we get to watch video and review that. Um, cause that's the supervision experience that I've had so far is, is, um, working in that kind of environment, but, um, you know, just having to ask them like, how is that demonstrating what we have been talking about? How, where is the skill there? Tell me, tell me what is making you feel good about that. Tell me how you hit those points. And, and eventually, um, you know, just having to challenge them on, on some of those mic, uh, micro skills and um, in basics. So, yeah, it, it can be hard. Once once I had I asked, I did ask, um, you know, just 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 saying, you know, yeah. Tell me how that's counseling. So, yeah, that that didn't feel good, but it felt like you had to ask in that moment. I kind of went for or the bigger answer to this question and sort of the ones that have uh, struck me as the toughest thing to say to a student or a supervisee that you're not listening to the client. They're doing the job. They're doing what they think they should be doing, being a counselor. But you listen to the interaction that they're having with their client and you're going, I'm hearing this and this and this from the client. And the next thing they do or the next thing they say is not connected to any of this, this, and this. So then the hardest feedback that I have is to kind of say, I don't know if I say it, I don't know if I'm uh, 
try to be supportive when I say it, because there's no way to be supportive. It's just my experience of what I'm seeing and hearing is that you're not listening to the client. Let's listen to that again. And let's see if you can hear what the client's saying and assuming that I've got a better ear at figuring that out than you do. But let's listen and see what you think the client's saying. And hopefully they'll get it and they'll say, they'll realize that that just kind of went through them, but they still can pick it out. It's even scarier when they still don't get it. And you realize this could be sort of a sensory deficit that they have in uh, the way they are engaged with people in social situations that stuff goes right through them. So that's the toughest for me. Yeah. You know, for me, I was kind of glad. I I wasn't glad that you missed a week, Jen, but I was glad I had an extra week to think about this question because I was struggling with it, but I came up with three um, supervision incidents that stood out And basically, the challenging feedback was that counseling ethics trumps being born again. And I had, and 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 I'm not talking about three people who were, you know, quote unquote, religious zealots, but they were trying to weave some evangelical tone into the session. I mean, as my whole life, I spent struggling with theology, the Anglican church. When I was a kid, we'd go to the fairs. I would always go into the evangelical tent. Everyone would be like, where's Elliot? And they'd be like, oh, he's on the Christian ride again. We, we'll get him out later, you know, whatever. I just fascinated. I wanted to hear what people had to say. But so I understood the sincerity of belief that these people had. And, um, and I, I could see where they were going. And I was like, well, you're in a secular counseling setting. And when you graduate, when you get your license, if you want to hold yourself out as a Christian counselor, that is fine. And you would probably be very good at that. But you have to meet the client where they're at. This particular clients have not expressed any interest in supreme beings, in being saved, in eschatology, any of that. So you're drifting off course here and you're basically following your own agenda. And again, I was I I could resonate with their sincerity, but I, I just I, they needed I needed them to know that this is your agenda, and you're not meeting the client where they're at. Yeah, I really appreciate everyone's answers because this idea of missing the client, whether it's because they're not listening or they're pushing an agenda, um, or they're thinking that they're they're playing counselor rather than being counselor. I think that that's one of the ones that's hardest for me of they have this picture of how they're supposed to be counselor and um, they go into the room and they're playing the role rather than being the role. And that is really challenging to help students and supervisees, at least for me to help them line that up, that you are the counselor that you're picturing in your mind as opposed to the counselor who you are. And it's blocking you from really showing up for the client, whether that's listening or paying attention to the cues or pushing your own agenda or whatever the case may be that's causing that disconnect. But I find that trying to describe that disconnect is always very challenging. And 
always um, seems to create a little bit of challenge from the from the counselor in training because they've gone in with the mindset that they're doing it right, quote unquote. Um, but interestingly, it seems in those situations, it's the students or supervisees who haven't prepared as well. They may be the ones who don't really do the reading or they don't do the practice before they go to the sessions and those types of things, which personally, that's one of my values that I have to check um, when I'm in the supervision situation, which feels challenging to me, which is to check my own values of, I think, you should have read everything that you should have practiced you that that is the way that you prepare for this situation so i think it's a double challenge of challenging my own values and what i believe students should be doing to prepare for the counseling situation and then the challenge of actually working with the confrontation we'll call it um, when working through challenging feedback the next question is do you like a specific tea or coffee or something else that you like to sip throughout the day Every morning, I look forward to my coffee. I can't drink coffee throughout the day anymore. I used to be able to, but that's that's over and done with. Um, just one cup or at least one, one big brew a day on the Keurig. Um, but for the last two years, and, and this is the coffee I need to have now, it is the Donut Shop Coconut Mocha coffee. And my favorite is the International Delight Cinnabon Creamer. It was the, it's the Almond Joy, but I can't find the Almond Joy anywhere at all. But with the Cinnabon, that's pretty good with that creamer. And in a pinch, I'll do the, the Coffee Mate Coconut. But it gives me something really good to look forward to in the morning. So that's, that's not that's, co- that's not coffee. That's a de- that's liquid dessert. It's it's true. It well, I do say I like my coffee like melted coffee ice cream. Yeah, that's that's what it sounds like. Well, I, I you know, I, I attribute my daily thing that I like to and I took the I took the thing sip through the day as as being really important part of that question. Like Steph, I can't manage coffee through the day. It's just too much on my stomach and wires me out. But I, I have to thank Gerard Lawson for my drink that I like to have throughout the day. I thought I was a man of the world, and then uh, I met Gerard Lawson. Uh, if you're listening, Gerard, uh, I know he's not listening. So, um, but I, I was in a restaurant. He would never listen to this. Um, I was in a restaurant with him, and he had ordered an Arnold Palmer. And I thought, well, I, that must be some cocktail that I've never heard of before. And I thought about it, and he told me. Finally, I figured out what was in it, and maybe it was a year later I decided to pick it up. And damn, if I'm not addicted to it. Um, It is, for those of you who don't know, iced tea, half and half with lemonade. And I have it in my 2016 World Series Chicago Cubs World Series championship mug that has enough clarity to it that I can determine the levels of Arnold Palmer in it. And that's what I sip throughout the day on my desk. And I've got it for the show now, uh, right now, too, that um, I enjoy during the show. So that's kind of my go-to. Easy on the stomach. I I get the zero points or the zero calorie version of it that you can get in the store by the gallon. So I'm not sucking down a lot of sugar all day. So that's my go-to. Yeah, it's funny how... uh things have changed over the years. Um, 
the first time I was department chair in the early aughts, I used to go to the chain, the restaurant here in Northeast Ohio, yours truly, and the one in Hudson. Yeah, I went there every morning at six o'clock and there were these two guys, Dave and Casey from Hudson Auto, and they would get their decaf coffee and oatmeal. And I'd be like, oh, you guys are really kicking it up today. And they're like, oh, Elliot, you just wait. You just wait till you cross the line of 50, you know, and I'd be like, ah, yeah, yeah. Well, I crossed the line of 50 and the Red Bull's gone, the coffee, a cup in the morning at most. I have become a water chugger. I'm a water chugger. And I thought, ah, Christ, I thought, Jay, I, I thought, man, do I have diabetes or something? You know, because I drink it all day and all night. And then I talked to my doctor and she's like, well, at the maximum, you have an ounce of water for every pound you weigh. So I'm about, I like to say 14 stone sounds better than 196 pounds, but that's actually a gallon and a half a day. And I was like, no, that's about where I'm at. She's like, I've quit worrying. She's like, you worry too much. That's your problem. Well, I am a real coffee drinker, drink it all day long, starting in the morning. Now I will admit that midday-ish, I'm usually ready for Diet Coke. Yes, I am still drinking Diet Coke. Um, but if I'm at a restaurant, unsweet tea, or um, if they have sugar-free lemonade, because I think I've said on the show before, I don't eat sugar. So I will have an Arnold Palmer if I am able to do that, especially in summer. But honestly, cold drinks where I live that it is you know below zero half the damn winter, um, I'm just not about that. If I'm going to have a cold drink, it's going to be water at home or bubble water. I mean, everyone's in the bubble water. I've always loved it. And so um, that's always nice. But I'll have, I usually have a cup of coffee in the evening. I'm actually having a Diet Coke this evening because I had a cup of coffee um, right before we were on the show because I decided to walk to Starbucks and have a treat because I had stars and they said they were expiring. I'm with you, Jen. I am coffee all the way. I am, again, as you've all said, it changes over the years. And ever since I had my baby, uh, I have been a an avid coffee drinker. I used to try to not drink it after 3 p.m. because then I would have really, really vivid dreams. It wouldn't really affect my sleep, but my dreams would get wild. So I tried to tried to stop that. And then once I had a baby, every, all bets were off. So I had to go back to drinking coffee at literally every hour of the day. Um, but recently, I've actually started also drinking chicken broth, which sounds gross and kind of weird, but it's actually a really good like filler. I usually get really hungry multiple times throughout the day. And I find if I'm drinking alternating between coffee and chicken broth, it works. Um, so those are, those are my really weird and uh, filling beverages that I drink throughout the day. So my question is, uh, are faculty being overloaded right now to the point of diminishing returns all around? So it's just not, it, it's detrimental to faculty, students, and the university. Boy, this, I can see where this is headed just by the question. <laughs> a little loaded? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah, we we have uh, it, it, we're in a zoom. We're like in this zoom out vortex, and it's kind of a vortex because it keeps expanding, although space and time doesn't. Um, so you know, everybody figures we'll just handle it by another zoom meeting, and uh, I am like really tired of going to meetings, uh, being offered webinars, 
often on the same topics over and over and over again without any functional purpose. So that added on top of it in many institutions are doing things like added course loads to deal with um, the financial stress that they're in. And, and we've done that at my institution and um, our college has kind of accepted that on. But at the same time, um, you know, where's your publications? Where's your grants? What, you know, what do you, you know, why aren't you, why is people, why aren't, don't people want to get into uh, do research fairs and things like that? It's because we're swamped. And unfortunately, I'm beginning to feel it in my classes because by the time classes roll around in the evening, I'm pretty wiped. And, and you know, so are my students. Um, you can tell that. I don't think that my quality of students have dropped. I don't think my quality of teaching has changed. But this remote uh, life that we're living is is really painful. So much so that I was thinking, no, I'm going to play it safe. I'm not going to go back. I'm going to do all my stuff online in the fall. And now it's like, I've got to get back in the classroom. I have to move around a physical space full of students and and see if that if I feel any more alive from that experience. Well, I, I totally resonate with that, Marty. And I would encourage you to do it because I was losing my freaking mind, honestly. I am not an online teacher. I mean, I did it, but um, I did not feel I was rising to the level that I held myself to. I didn't feel connected to my students. Um, and, you know, so I appreciate your answer. More to the point, I think, you know, due to the stress of the pandemic and the fiscal crises at university, uh, our workload has technically stayed the same for now. For now. Um, but it's required much more innovation and effort to deliver. So I've got large classes from 30 to 60 people. And yeah, they're basically lecture format, but it's it's I've got half of them in class and half of them on Zoom. And I am so grateful to those students who show up in class because that saved my my mind and it it resurrected me not to be Easter-esque, but you know, I'll just use that theme. It resurrected me as an instructor. I just felt alive again. So I would encourage you, Marty, to, to do that. Um, being alone takes its toll as well. Not being able to wander down the hall and say, oh, hey, have you thought about this idea? And, you know, bash ideas around. And at my institution, they're releasing a 2.0 version. And uh, our college is going to be obliterated, which frankly is fine. They're going to fold us into another college, but we'll be with social sciences, which will include psychology and social work. I think there's much more kinship there than there ever was with teacher education. So I am fine with that. But we don't have a contract yet. Uh, the last contract has been uh, held over until they can negotiate a new one. And I'm sure the administration will probably use that uh, as an excuse to maybe raise the the, the course load. But that sounds almost conspiratorial. So I will say I do not speak for Cleveland State University or the fine management that they have in place. This is simply my personal opinion. 
Well, this is simply my personal opinion as well, and I do not speak for or express the views of Marquette University in this, um, what I'm about to say. But shortly, you know, short answer to your question, Steph, is yes. Um, And what I've observed is this really interesting upside down universe in which the idea seems to be if we squeeze people tighter take away more and more resources and give them more to do that they'll be more productive. And I'm sorry, I don't know if anybody's read a research article in the past 20 years, but what we know is that when you decrease people's resources, when you increase their responsibilities, decrease their money, take away their retirement contributions, just as an example, um, those kinds of things have this very inverse effect to where, guess what? Now, I don't want to work 65 hours. I happily worked 65, 70 hours in the past. And I did it with purpose and with meaning, being able to produce my research and do well for students and to really show up for my colleagues. Um, The inverse is happening now. So you've squeezed so tight that now... I, I still, I still am showing up. I'm still doing as best as I can for my students, but I'm going to tell you, there has been a deep hit to my research. There's been a deep hit to my bandwidth to prepare for classes, which is really unfortunate given the fact that I'm having to do all this hybrid stuff because I'm both teaching in person and online. So I'm having to create brand new online content in the midst of it, you know, and we did finally start getting some thank yous um, where I work, but, you know, a thank you is not going to pay the bills. Um, and, you know, we're in a profession that has a lucrative program. We have a lot of high demand for the students that we are producing. And it's really difficult to be in that situation um, of austerity. I, there's no better way of talking about it except austerity. And wondering what the face of higher education is going to look like the more we squeeze the life out of faculty to where they're going to end up in mental institutions, at least an inpatient unit for two weeks, trying to recover their sanity. And I I do not say that lightly because I see people going off the rails from the isolation, the workload, and not being able to do the work that they love in the midst of it, because all love is lost, um, or it's so far away now that people can't even find it. So I think some of this is what I'm seeing, but also some of this is what I'm experiencing. Um, because the tighter you squeeze people, the more they're just going to fall over. And maybe that's what they're hoping for. I don't know. So then they don't have to replace the line, but it's, it's really, yes. The answer to the question is yes, in my opinion. So I think I'm coming at this from a little bit of a different angle because all of the teaching that I've done is primarily online uh, to begin with. So I've been doing this for now. This is my fourth year and this year is different. I just have to put that out there that this year is different. Uh, It's been different. It's been different in the online context. And yes, I signed up to do online teaching since day one, but I did not sign up to do an online PhD program. And that's what this has turned into. And so at this point in my um, doctoral journey, I'm scheduling my defense and I'm moving towards that. I'm just a couple weeks away now. And there's been talk of, can we hold this in person? Can we do this in person? Because honestly, I have not stepped foot on campus in over a year now. And it would be really special to be able to defend my dissertation in person with just a few other people in a large classroom socially distant, wearing masks. 
And the answer was no. And it makes me so sad because, you know, thinking back the last time that I was on campus, I didn't know that would be the last time on campus for my entire doctoral journey. Um, And I know this sounds like a relatively small thing in the scheme of life and in the scheme of academics, but it's, I think it's the challenge of different expectations and things changing and the anxiety and fear around having to hold things in person versus not. So I think that's what's really changing it for me, at least in this context, is even if I do want to hold something in person, even if I do want to, you know, have my defense with a few faculty members, um, you know, there's that fear there and there's that, you know, I have to adjust my expectations around that, uh, which is causing more complications to this. So again, I agree with what everyone said. I think yes, uh, but I think it's more of expectations versus reality for me. I asked this question. I mean, I haven't taught in almost a year, um, been in, in that kind of situation. But as a student, even though I'm not a student in the most traditional because I'm I'm a candidate working on my dissertation, um, I just, I'm getting the sense that all the faculty just, they, they all just need a vacation. Um, it's not very, you know, it's, it's, you know, not very in your face necessary, but, but being around, I'm noticing subtle changes. Maybe some of them are more observable, but nothing bad. Cause I think it, it's understandable. Like the, those, you know, unrealistic expectations of the university. Um, and programs for the faculty and what's going on, they get caught in the middle. It kind of reminds me of when I was doing in-home work and, you know, you had billable hours that you had to reach, but also you were relying on your clients to show up. And if your clients didn't show up, then you had to make up those hours because so you're just being scrunched in the middle from both sides. And that's kind of the feeling I get for faculty right now. And especially in the last year, for sure, that definitely like, accelerated things it felt it feels like but I I just I just want to like give all faculty everywhere a big hug and and I wish I could have the authority to tell them to take a month off um rest and recover but it, it just I just was getting that sense um that's all what's the biggest mistake academics make in their career this is a great question um I was thinking when 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 I read the question, I was thinking of a song by a group called Enigma. Some of you might know them. Yeah, right. Oh gosh, great music. Ah, uh, stop. Don't go into detail, Elliot. Okay, Jimmy's like, tell them what it's great for, but don't. It's, a, it's fine. Anyway, great music, and they have a song called Eyes of Truth. And so the first thing that popped into my mind was they do not use their eyes of truth when they scope out potential employment. Um, they might get drawn into the buzz. Oh, well, we're rated, you know, this highly as a program. We publish this much, but they don't look into the interpersonal dynamics. I've had interviews where a faculty, faculty members were grieving one another to such an extent that several broke down in a group interview. And I was just interviewing. I was, you know, and they're like, and I'm like, whoa, this is bad vibe. Um, <laughs> If you're looking at employment, you should look at the fiscal history of the institution. 
Uh, how much have they spent? How many capital gains bonds have they invested in? How much is coming due you know, in the coming uh, months? Um, how many presidents have they burned through in the last decade? How many no confidence votes have presidents had uh, levied against them? Things like that are really important because I can tell you, uh, the morale of a group is one of the most important things which makes for enjoyable employment. That's such a great point, Elliot, about paying attention to those dynamics. And they are legit. Like, I, yeah, I won't tell. I, I had some interesting interview experiences. I'll say that much. But the thing that came to mind for me, um, and I agree wholeheartedly with what Elliot is saying, is saying yes more than you're saying no. Um, I think that as counselors, we're natural helpers. And so we make this mistake of yes, yes, yes all the time because we also have a great skill set. And there are a lot of things that we can do, but that doesn't mean that you should do them. It's sort of like just because there's a gap in the literature doesn't mean it needs to be filled. Um, just because something needs to be done in the department doesn't mean that you're the person who has to do it. Um, and this is, you know, this is a hard lesson to learn because once they learn that they can get that out of you, you will have to continue to produce at that level and to work that hard and do all of those things. Otherwise, if you back off, then there's something wrong and you're not a team player, you know, and I've seen this happen to so many colleagues who try to set some boundaries and say, look, I'm going to work 55 hours a week instead of 70. And it's like, you, you really don't value us anymore. Do you, you know, and suddenly it becomes, you know, very tense situation. So I would say, you know, set boundaries. And that's, I think where we fall short at times is not setting healthy boundaries early on. Um, those boundaries can be permeable, but they also, your life is important. Who you are is important. Your mental health, your family, all of those things are just as important as whatever gets done at the job. And guess what? If you don't do it, somebody else will. And if they don't, I guess it didn't need to get done. I think that's important to hear uh, as I'm looking at the job market, as I'm entering into the scene. And I feel like I'm in a unique position because on one hand, I have a lot of teaching experience and I've had that role for a while. But on the other hand, I feel like I'm just now entering into the full counselor educator role. So I feel like for me, I don't know the biggest mistake yet because I haven't, I haven't entered into it fully. But on the other hand, I'm like, you've kind of been doing this for a little bit. So you kind of know the ropes a little bit. Uh, and I think for me at this point in my career, it's not staying true to yourself. So like Jen, what you just mentioned, right? So saying yes to things that maybe didn't matter a lot to you, that you just said yes, because you felt like you needed to fill that gap, whatever that gap might be, um, and that kind of thing. So I think for me, it's not staying true to yourself. And again, that also goes into what Elliot, you were saying too, with the, with the culture at where you work and stuff like that. If you don't have that personal connection, if it doesn't mean something, then it's not going to be effective and it's not going to be enjoyable. Um, so that's something that I'm hoping to, to hold on to as I make this next transition. So, I mean, that, that covers a lot. Um, I think as far as also where I'm sitting, um, and what I would be aware of, I think there's a lot more that I would have better answers to this question in, in 15, 20 years, probably, um, at least more unique answers. 
But one thing that I'm wondering about anyways, that could be a mistake. Um, I wonder if, if academics are so get, get far removed from the practical, um, from the application and, and the clinical part of that sometimes. I don't know. I'm just, it's just kind of like, is, is that a mistake academics make sometimes is they get so caught up in, in, in the academia and, and in research that they forget the human side or they forget the actual practice of what they're trying to study. Um, I don't know, but I could see that maybe in some ways, but I don't know. It's not something I've observed a, a whole lot, but who knows? Thanks uh, for your answers on this. And it, it being true to yourself, whether it's uh, being a clinician or whether it's uh, the composition of your culture and what your experience is, I think, um, is a big piece of the mistake that we make as academics. Um, what I was drawn to last week, I was going through, uh, I'm, I was on the provost uh, pro, uh, promotion advisory board, which means we review files from across the university and give suggestions or recommendations um, to the provost in terms of promotion and or promotion in this case. In doing that, we have to look at handbooks. And what I became aware of, there is a very narrow definition of what scholarship is. And the university has bought into that. Um, higher, uh, higher education has bought into that. So generally, we're looking at published peer-reviewed manuscripts as being the only sole source of scholarship or advancement. Now, that's a problem for folks if they walk into that going, yeah, I can handle that, and they have to, in the process, become someone else than who they are, which goes back to that idea of uh, bringing, uh, not losing your authenticity um, in the process. So, the mistake is kind of buying into that system and then losing yourself in it. Uh, so again, it's a, you got to find a good match. There are institutions that expect people to have clinical days. There are institutions that expect people as part of their promotion and tenure process to be involved in community service and application. Um, but a lot of them are looking at numbers of publications and types of publications. And that is the scholarship portion of their handbook. We got another question, a couple of heavy ones. We, you know, our faculty being overloaded and then what's the mistake that faculty make or academics make? Uh, we need a palate cleanser, uh, Elliot. Yep, here we go. What posters or pictures adorned walls in the room of your teenage self. I racked my brain trying to remember any like posters or whatever on my walls. I could not for the life of me, remember any of them. But what I do remember is there was this area, like a little cutout area behind my bedroom door that I used paint pens and nail polish, like to paint, like you know, different things. And then I used with a hot glue gun, those coins you win in the arcade to get like prizes and stuff. I hot glued them like in a mosaic tile pattern. Um, 
and then also on one of my bedroom walls, painted a partial mural to get rid of the damage from the coins that I hot glued into this like mosaic thing. My mom had to buy like this really thick wallpaper to like wallpaper it over. Otherwise she was going to have to like replace the drywall when she went to sell the house. I mean, that was like how hard it was to get these. Yeah, I was that kid, but I don't remember any posters, but I do remember doing creative things to my walls that um, I'm not an artist, but I like to pretend like I am because I have all these ideas and it usually just comes out being something I enjoy, but that was my teenage room. So similarly, I I was not a poster kid. I didn't have very many posters. And so I was also trying really hard to remember what kinds of things were on my walls in my teenage years. And I, so I lived in one house um, for my first few years of high school. And then halfway through, I moved to a different house. And in the first house, that was like the bedroom that I had grown up in. And so it had this wallpaper because this was back in the 90s. And so it had this real thick wallpaper, Jen, like you had after. Uh, And it was um, yellow with like darker yellow stripes. And I loved it when I was really little. And by the time I got to high school, I couldn't stand it any longer. So when I moved into the new house, I was like, the only thing I wanted on my walls was paint and not wallpaper. And it still had to be yellow because yellow is my favorite color. So it was bright yellow walls and that was it. And so I don't, I really don't think I had anything on the walls, just that bright yellow paint. I'm feeling better now. I'm going to have two answers because first answer was in the house, in the house, nothing, nothing, just, you know, whatever appropriate decorations in frames that my mom thought on her walls because they were her walls, my bedroom, her walls for the most part. I mean, I put stickers on the door when I was like seven, you know, you had all your sticker books and just from that on just, I wasn't allowed anything. She was so upset. So then finally get to go to college and the internet was just picking up at the time where I could find all these cool things. And I got, I had a labyrinth original movie poster and I had it like ironed onto this piece of foam board at a professional frame studio to take that with me to college, to my dorm room. And I I had lots of David Bowie as a sophomore. I used the glow in the dark letters and I wrote David Bowie come to me in glow in the dark letters on my wall and every poster I could find, huge Aladdin, insane post, like just everything. So it, it was a, a Bowie collage, basically. Uh, this might have been, this might show my age. It might also show my upbringing. But the only way, if we had posters, the only way we get them on our walls was to take a wad of masking tape and you know, turn it into double side tape and hang it up on a wall. And there was no way in my household was my mother going to permit me or my father to put anything that would leave a mark on the wall. So in the room that I occupied during my teenage years, I don't recall anything being hung up on the wall um, except for a felt poster. Well, it was like a banner. It was red and it was in in black print on this felt poster. And it was hung from the the, uh, trim 
at the ceiling. So it wasn't really attached to the wall. And that was the way we were protecting the wall. Uh, was it, The banner was Linus holding his blanket. And on it, it said, it doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you're sincere. And I thought, well, that's kind of a nice Schultzian kind of comment. But if you take that statement and really work through that, it does matter what you believe in, and particularly if you're sincere about it. So it's it doesn't really fit with where my politics or where my uh, where my beliefs are now. But that's the one thing I remember was Linus with his blanket. Um, on this red felt banner that hung from my ceiling. Oh, these are these are fun answers. You know, I was an equal equal opportunity poster hanger, so I had the Farrah Fawcett red swimsuit poster, and I had the David Hasselhoff black bikini brief poster. Ah, oh, lovely! And then I had a Pink Floyd poster that I got from the double album uh, Umaguma or Amagama. I've never been no, uh, sure how to pronounce that. It's like five foot by three foot. And so I had those were the three that, you know, adorned my walls, probably from, you know, 16 to 19. So that's it for questions tonight. Whoa, I got a final shot question. This actually was supplied, I think, by Stephanie. Are your taxes done yet? Yep. Done. Money's in the bank. Done. Money's out of the bank. My part's done. I got to drop it all off to the tax guy tomorrow. Mine are at the accountant, but the news is not good, and I'm hustling all kinds of consulting jobs to pay for it. Like Elliot, I don't use uh, tax software. I use wetware is what I like to call it. I have an accountant. Aileen and I send our stuff over there. It has come back. It is not, uh, yeah, it's, um, we get a hit a lot um, every year and we got to figure this out. But, you know, thank God we've, thank God we're, we're in a place where we can be hit every year. Um, but we make our, our fair contribution to the government in terms of taxes. And those checks got mailed out Saturday. Well, hopefully, if your taxes aren't done yet, you're going to get them done soon. I want to thank the squad, uh, Elliot, Gina, Stephanie, Jen, for joining tonight for Circular Firing Squad, our 25th show. Look for some of these characters on their podcast on the podtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. We just started a new show separate from Circular Firing Squad, called Counseling Delphi, which is a monthly video live stream show that we do on Sunday nights. The live stream component will allow viewers to be able to submit questions for consideration to the panel. Interested viewers can also submit at the website for that show, counselingdelphi.net. Shows will be available for later viewing with real-time transcription. And the audio from the live stream is going to be converted into podcasts. So if you don't want to watch it, you can listen to it as a podcast and release to all major podcast services. Our next Counseling Delphi show is coming up in a couple of weeks, and it's going to be hosted by Gina Martin. And she's going to be talking about the topic of neuroscience in counseling with some cool people to do it with. 
Our theme music is from Menage Quad, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim. <laughs> <laughs>